This is Melissa Hale Spencer for our weekly podcast, and I am just delighted today to be at 14 Rat Road with Beverly Bardiquez. I am sitting in her home, which she is going to tell us about, but I just want to tell our listeners first, it is this, on a gray day, it is this uplifting space that she has just decorated with great care and love. It has an old sofa reupholstered and these earth tones, and she's sitting in a wing chair that complements it by her fireplace. And thank you so much for having us. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. And we've written about Beverly on and off for years because she is a spokeswoman for her neighborhood. And we're hoping to hear about Beverly and her neighborhood. So just let's start with your telling me, as you just were moments ago, about how you came to this house. Okay. My Aunt Emma Dixon, who grew up, was actually was born and grew up in this neighborhood and is the person that spearheaded the documentation of our history and this neighborhood with uh, another young woman by the name of Jennifer Lamack and my mother, Girly Ferguson. They conspired and convinced me to move back to the neighborhood in 1994. I was living in a little comfortable condo up in the town of uh, Half Moon and I pretty much was settled there. And they said, don't you want to come back and live in Rap, on Rap Road again? And I said, well, I said, I, I need to think about that. Uh, I had grown up on Rap Road as a child. Can you tell us a little about what Rap Road was like when you were a child? When I was a little girl... My recollection, my earliest recollection of Rap Road, I was four years old. And I remember we lived down, actually, we lived down on Pine Lane, which is right off of Rap Road, before you reach Gip Road. My mother and father rented a little home down there from one of the farmers, Mr. Salisbury. Mr. Salisbury had, I remember, a pasture, and he used to let my little brother and I get in the back of his hay wagon, and we would go down to the pasture with him on the back of that hay wagon that he pulled by horse. That was one of my earliest recollections. The other was one snowy winter day, my mom had me get up and look on our front porch and there was a beautiful silver sleigh leaning up against the doorway. Mr. Salisbury had refurbished an old sled and left it by the door for us. And I can remember my mom pulling my little brother and I on the sled up the road, up Rap Road to my grandmother's house who happens to live right next door to me now. And those were some of my earliest recollections of Rap Road. I remember my mother 
and her siblings, they were always doing projects. My family is a family that always has to have a project going on. And I can remember my mother, my grandmother, and my mother's siblings, who were my aunts, uh, making a manger set out on the front lawn at Christmas time. And this this is all at four years old. These are memories I have what at four great years old. Memories. And I can remember the I can still smell the scent of the pine boughs that they used to make the roof of the manger. And it was just it was just I, I it was just such a wonderful warm feeling being with my family, watching them do and it didn't occur to me just how industrious they were as women at the time. But as I got older, it started to occur to me, they will tackle anything. They will build anything. And, uh, and they've passed that down to uh, some of us. Not so much me. I'm not a manual person. But my girls, my daughters, they will tackle and build anything. Paul, I think you're somebody that tackles and builds. It might not be manually, but <laughs> you're building a community and keeping mm-hmm. it whole here. Um, I just love these early memories. Could mm-hmm. you go back further and just give our listeners an idea of the history of this community? Why it's so special? Who Oh, my goodness. It? Oh, my goodness. The... Gentleman that was responsible for developing this community, his name was Reverend Lewis Parson. He came to this area in the early 1930s. He'd come from Shibuta, Mississippi, by way of Cleveland. He had a sister that lived in Cleveland and then through Buffalo and settled here in Albany. He said God had led him here. And the reason he left Shibuta was because he had worked on the railroad at one point and was injured. And as a result of that injury, he was awarded a sum of money because of the injury. And he felt that it wasn't a good idea for a gentleman, a black man in the South at that time, to have a lot of money. So he came north to, as I said, Cleveland, Ohio. When he got to Albany, he was a pastor, and he met up with three women who had just been involved with a revival at Union Missionary Baptist Church, which still exists today. And when he got with these three women, they kept the prayer going. And eventually, as time went on, a church was formed. Uh, They had a little storefront church in the south end of Albany. This was in the 1930s. 
he wanted to grow his flock. So in the effort to grow his flock, he started recruiting family members and friends from Shibuta, Mississippi to come to Albany. There were better job opportunities because during that time, the industry, the farming industry was folding. Uh, you had uh, little work to be had. Education was not very much available for black children during that time. Um, you had uh, tenant farmers. They were tenant farmers and sharecroppers. And they couldn't get ahead because the owners of the farms would do what we coined as stacking the books. So when they would buy supplies for their crops and they would try to uh, turn in their harvest, they always seemed to end up owing. So they couldn't get ahead. Yeah, it was a rigged system. It yes. was a rigged system, right. So that was part of the reason they were very interested in leaving the South at that time. And th this was during the 1930s. Now, the Great Migration was started in 1910. And, and it lasted through World and it War last, II. It yeah. lasted through World War II, yes. And so they were in that wave of people that came to Albany in the 1930s. And it wasn't easy to get to Albany. That's the interesting thing. Most people headed towards Chicago or Texas or they, they went different, they went different uh, parts of the country where it was easier to get to. Mm -hmm. But these folks settled on Albany, New York. And what they would do is he would come through Mississippi at a certain time. They, every year there was uh, what they called a church convocation or a big conference for the Church of God in Christ. And what they would do is when the conference was over, those that wanted to come back with him to Albany would come, the, he would come through Shibuta and he'd let them know on or about what time he would be coming. It was always on a Saturday evening. And the reason being was because on Sunday, that was their day to worship. And they worshiped all day. So they wouldn't be missed. They were not expected I to see. show up for work, so there was no cause to wonder where they were. By the time Monday morning rolled around, they would be well above the Mason-Dixon line, headed north. And that's how most of the people that he brought to Albany, New York, from that area, got here. He had a he had a, a seven passenger Buick. Okay, and he would have that Buick packed with families, and they basically had to come with nothing more than the clothing on their backs and what little bit they could afford to carry with them uh, to make the trip north. 
most of the time they had children. And, you know, it, it, it had to have been very a very tough ride with children and adults crammed into a seven-passenger car. But they were looking for a better way of life for themselves and their children. And so that's how they come to be in Albany, New York. They settled in the south end of Albany. Herkimer Street, Duncan Avenue, Green Street. Those were the areas where they settled. And I remember my mom saying when she came to Albany, the question she asked her mom was, where's the house we're going to live in? Because they were all row houses. Oh, and she was, she was used, used to as, separate she was used to a house with style. a with a yard and yeah. and plenty of space around it. So she wanted to know where was the house they were going to live in. And uh the the housing conditions were not that great by the way. Uh, when they came here to the south end there was a lot of bars there was a lot of prostitution, gambling, and it wasn't a good fit for a faith-based community because they were, they were all a part of the church. And so some of them got discouraged and wanted to turn back and go back south, and did, some did. My great-grandfather was one of the people that decided this was not for him, and he went back south, he and my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother would go back and forth and visit with her children. She would come here and spend time with the children, but she always returned south. So how is it this community grew out of that? Because this was pine bush land, sort of empty. This was... This was nothing but pine trees and sand, as I remember it as a child. Elder Parson and a gentleman by the name of William Tolliver decided to purchase some land out here because Tolliver, uh, not Tolliver, but Parson was a visionary. And he knew if he wanted to keep people here and he wanted to grow his church, he had to find some place where they would feel comfortable. So the two of them pooled their resources and they bought 14 acres of land. And that was in 1930. And what they did was they started parceling out the land to church members. It was only church members that were uh, sold property out here. My grandmother and grandfather were one of the couples that settled here. I had an uncle. I had actually two uncles and their families who settled here. I had two cousins who settled here and a host of other people. By 1933, Elder Parson and his wife Frances bought another 
14 acres of land. So in all, they had 28 acres of land that they sold to their parishioners. And what they would do was they didn't, they couldn't pay them all at once. So as they could afford to pay for their land, that's what they did. However, they started clearing the land and being farmers, and that's what they knew. They started making gardens. There were gardens all up and down Rap Road. Everywhere you looked, you saw gardens. I can, I can remember dry, uh, driving down the road with my grandparents, waving at somebody in the cornfield. I can remember getting in trouble for running into my uncle's garden and stealing cucumbers and because we loved cucumbers. <laughs> and uh, we would go and get, he would grow these little watermelons and we loved the little watermelons. And he would chase us, but he knew we were, you know, we were there. It was, it was almost like a game with us. But I remember the gardens that were up and down this road. There was livestock. There were cows, there were pigs. My grandmother used to send me when I got older to the hen house to go get the chicken. And I loved nothing more than feeling the warm eggs with the chicken feathers still on them. And uh, I can remember, they were very self-sufficient. I can remember uh, on a Sunday morning my grandmother going with her out to the hen house, getting a hen, and grandma would bring it to the chopping block, and she'd wring its neck and chop the head off, and the chicken would still be running around. And it freaked me out because I'm like, like but she just chopped its head off. Why is it still running around? And And then she would take and she would clean it, and that afternoon... We were having a chicken dinner. So really, in a lot of ways, the Shibuta, Mississippi lifestyle was transferred. They transferred it here. They did. And then, now you have to remember, this is now during, we're headed into World War II now. Mm -hmm. Okay? And the, the Depression is intact, and there's not a lot of work to be had. The women would go out and do domestic work. That's how they made their money. Some would stay in the community and watch the children. Others would go out and work. They worked together as a community. And the men would get work wherever they could. Uh, Some of them would go to the Port of Albany and, and try to get on a day's work. Some would go to Allegheny, Ludnam, and Steele. Um... Uh, Simmons Tool and Machine Machine Tool Company. They wherever they could find work, they would go and seek work. But it was it was their determination to survive and and to work together that helped this community to stay intact all these years. 
Yeah, and when you drive around, as we did coming to Beverly's house here, you can still see the original houses because they're that bungalow style from like the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And I bet you some of them were built by the people themselves. Every house on this road was built by hand by the owners. And each one had some strength that they could lend to help. I can remember my grandfather and my uncles digging a foundation. I remember them digging a foundation and they were doing it by hand. There were no mortgages, no loans to be had. They would dig the foundation and then they would take cinder blocks. If you look at these bungalows, you will see most of them, actually all of them, have cinder block foundations. Yeah, they just, they, it just has a real charm to it. And um, our newspaper has written about the neighborhood because it was designated for both the national and state historic registries. And what it's facing now, and I hope Beverly will fill us in on this, is all around it, instead of pine woods, is development, really heavy, heavy development. There's Crossgates Mall on one side, there's the um, row of big box stores on the other side, there's Washington Avenue Extension, and it's like this little oasis kind of in the middle of this hurly-burly of traffic and cement. So just tell me a little about what your efforts are now to preserve this heritage. What we have, what we have done to try to protect and preserve what we have that remains. Originally, there were 23 families that lived in this community. Now, there are about maybe eight, maybe 10 of us still live here. 10, 10, 10 of the original families, uh, uh, descendant, I mm-hmm. should say. Yeah. The original settlers are gone. But the descendants, there's about 10 families I would say that still live here. And we had to work very hard to get ourselves organized because we, first of all, we had to stave off and wrestle with the Pyramid Corporation, which owns Crossgates. 1971 was the turning point for us. Because that's when the state brought through the Washington Avenue Extension. Once Washington Avenue Extension came through, that opened it up for development. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the mall was there. Now, as you said, we have all these businesses that have built up all up and down Washington Avenue Extension. More immediate concern for us is now they're actually encroaching the neighborhood. And what we did was we formed a charter in 2006 and we became a 501c3 nonprofit organization so that we can try to preserve and keep what remains of this neighborhood intact. There are two developers 
right now that are at the beginning of our road that want to build. One has already built. The other is looking to build. And it's a concern because we don't want the face of our neighborhood to change. We don't mind change, but we want to keep our neighborhood, the historic neighborhood that it has been all these years. So we work very hard uh, to go out and do lectures. We do fundraising. We, anywhere we can go and tell our story, that's what we're doing to gather support so that we can keep our neighborhood intact. Yes, what seems so unusual to me is when you think of most historic places, it's just like a single building mm -hmm. or it's an edifice or it's mm -hmm. a statue. <laughs> Here you've got like a living, breathing neighborhood. It's a different kind of history that you're keeping alive. And if you could just talk a little about the people that are part of your um, organization now and like who they are mm -hmm. and how the neighborhood still functions because we have we have gathered a lot of support family members first because I have cousins that have stepped up to the plate um, that have really given their all to help organize um, one person that comes to mind is my cousin Stephanie Woodard she is a powerhouse. And then you have other people like my cousins that uh, help us keep books and, and, and help us. My daughter just recently, and I'm so proud, my daughter, Dina, who is uh, fourth generation, she has just recently uh, gotten involved she was a little girl and had no thought or interest about our history, but it's gotten where she realizes the importance of it. She has gotten on board recently, and she's doing lectures for us now. Um, we have support from organizations such as the Historic Albany Foundation, uh, the Preservation League of New York State, these are people who have come and said, how can we help you? Let us, let us do what we can to help you. Um, we have the, the Pine Bush Commission, one of our big supporters. They're always looking to help us in whatever way they can. So we have started getting uh, organizations that believe in preserving our history, excuse me, and, and are uh, willing to do what they can to help us. Um, I, I don't mean to digress, but I, I do have to go back and tell you a little story about these houses. And yes, I, I'd be remiss if I... would love to I, hear it. <laughs> I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you about it. The house that my grandparents built 
was built in 1944. They started building it in 1944. Like I said, the war was well underway and there weren't a lot of materials to be had. So it was hard for them to build the house and, and get it done. My grandmother, being an industrious woman, as I mentioned earlier, she decided, because they lived in the South End, and they would have to go back and forth from downtown Albany out here to Rap Road. Now, when you think of Rap Road now, it's like a thoroughfare. Back then, it was like a wagon trail. I believe it, yeah. It was a little narrow road, and you could barely get a vehicle down it. So she felt that if somehow they could stay here, it would make it easier for them to save money and do what they needed to do to build their house. So, so she would take scraps of repurposed materials and she built a shotgun house by herself. She started building this shotgun house. Well, my grandfather, when he saw that she was intent on doing this, he and her two brothers helped her finish that shotgun house. And is this the house you can see right out your window here? This is... Your daughter was pointing out some house to me. I can't... The house next door that you see out my window, that's what we call now the big house. Okay. Okay. The house that she built was a little shotgun house. And a shotgun house is a southern term for a house where the, the rooms the, are in a row. The rooms, like you, you can, can see shoot from a the front. Right through. You can see idea. from the front door to the back door. I see. Okay. And it wasn't very big. Yeah. It but wasn't she did very it big. Herself. But she, she was determined to build that house so that they could stay here and save their money for materials to build the big house. It took them five years to build the house that you see now. And that's a very substantial house. What happened to the shotgun house? Is the that- shotgun house eventually went by the wayside. Oh, okay. okay. It may have even turned into the hen house for all I know. <laughs> um, I'm not real sure yeah. whatever became of the shotgun house. I just know because it was before my time. Sure. But uh, I do know that she built, she was determined that she was going to build them shelter while they, and they said that she used newspaper and whatever else she could get her hands on to insulate and, 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 and build that house. And she did it. And she did it. And the other thing that I would like to uh, talk about is the school situation. The children here in this community went to what is now known as Eagle Point. Back then, it was School 27, Mm -hmm. okay, in the Albany School District. The school district would not send transportation out here because they said they had no way to get to the children. And so my grandmother 
and others would take turns getting the children to school and back. And finally, they decided since the school won't, the school district won't help us get them to school, the church put their resources together and bought a school bus. Oh my goodness. And my grandmother drove the school bus. So she was the first black woman to drive a bus in Albany. And order for them to bring the school bus into this community, my uncle and some of the other men had to open up the road so that they could turn the school bus around to get back out to Western Avenue. Because at that time, Western Avenue was the only way in to Rap Road. Mm -hmm. There was no other way to come in unless you came up Central Avenue and came across Lincoln Avenue and Lincoln Avenue looped around onto Rap Road. So does the church still play a role in the community? Everybody that lives on this road that was a part of the original community. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are, are, are residents now that are not part of the original community, but those that remain here, the families that I mentioned that are part of the original community, still belong to the church, and the church is getting ready to celebrate its 90th anniversary, and that's Wilborn Temple which is uh, a historic Jewish synagogue downtown Albany near the South Mall. The church bought that building from Beth Emmeth back in 1957. And the 90th anniversary is coming up? It's, it's coming up very soon, very soon. Um, they're, they're right now preparing for it. So it's been 90 years that that church, and it was the church that was the nucleus of this community. When the women that could not go, they, they believed in having noonday prayer on certain days. When the women that stayed in the community with the children could not get to the church because they had the children and no way to get to downtown. They had a home, which I'm sorry to say has been dismantled, where it was the prayer house, and they would go to that prayer house and pray. Everything they did evolved around the church and God. And that is what sustained them and helped them, their faith and their obedience to God, helped them to work together, to stay together, and to keep this community going. And no one knew we were here until Washington Avenue Extension came about. And when people started coming through here, they would they were in shock and they and they would just look because 
you see all these black people up and down this road and you're trying to figure out where did they come from? Well, we had been here since the early 30s. They just didn't know we were here. And they just didn't know your fascinating history. They did either. not know that we had migrated from Shibuda, Mississippi. And not everybody migrated from Shibuda. There were some that came from Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. Some came from Florida. But the majority of the folks that settled here, if you ask them where you're from, they'll tell you Shibuda. Have you ever been to Shibuda? I have. And when I went to Shibuda and I looked at the homes and the terrain, it was just like being on Rap Road. It felt like home. It felt just like Rap Road. I can show you pictures of Rap Road in the early days and Shibuda, and you wouldn't be able to tell which was which. And that brings us to the book you have in your lap, I think. Isn't yes. that? Yeah. Yeah, it's called Southern Life, Northern, Northern City. City. And mm-hmm. um, I, if you want to just tell us a little about that, because it seems to to, to embody just what you just told us, that mm-hmm. here this community brought its own values, its own house styles, mm-hmm. its own way of life, its church, right with it. Mm-hmm. So, This book was written by Jennifer Lamack. Jennifer Lamack was a graduate student at SUNY Albany. She was working on a project for one of her classes, and she went to Jack McEnany, who uh, you may or may not know is a great. He's he was an assemblyman, but he's also a great historian. And she wanted to do her project on a black community, and he suggested she come to Rap Road. Well, she didn't know anybody on Rap Road, so he introduced her to a cousin who lived here. And the cousin introduced her to my aunt, Emma Dixon, and... Jennifer told Emma that she was working on this project and would she be willing to help her gather information and maybe some oral interviews. And uh, the, the, the folks in this community were older and very guarded. So you just didn't knock on the door and say, would you mind if I interviewed you? Emma had to convince them and prep them that she's gathering information she wants to and because and it served a twofold purpose because Emma was trying to she was determined to get the history of how we got here and who we were documented somehow so it was a perfect match Jennifer was able to do her research project. Emma was able to get her history documented because there were all kinds of rumors. They, uh, some of the rumors said that Mayor Corning put them out there, 
you know, because they were coming in droves to Albany and he put them out there to get them out of the city. Well, that wasn't the case. Mm. Okay. So she wanted the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So she and Jennifer teamed up and they became the dynamic duo that put this history on paper. Yeah, it's a really readable and, book. It's very and and Jennifer became so ingrained in this project that when uh, it was suggested by uh, Stephen Belinsky, I believe his name was, he was with the New York State Museum. Um, he said that they might want to consider doing. Uh, being considered for nomination for the New York State Historic Registry because they felt they had enough information from the research Jennifer had done to submit an, uh, to an application to be nominated. And it was a long shot, but they did it. And when they submitted it, they were embraced because, like you said earlier, it's not, it's not uh, very often you find a community that's intact, that has, you know, has its history, where you can see where the people came from, how they got here, and what they were able to establish. Yes, and to put into writing the oral history, because oral history dies with the people, and now you've got it in hard we between have, hard covers. Well, and, we have we have a couple of we have a couple of uh, oral history videos, mm -hmm. and I'm very proud to say that my nephew, who is, he would be fourth generation. He just recently did a video and documented, he incorporated some of the oral videos, but he also included slides of uh, pictures and imagery of Rap Road. And uh, it's called The History of Rap Roads, Crossroads. And it's beautifully done. And it was aired this past winter on WMHT's uh, oh, good to know. channel 11. We, you can go online. Yeah. You can go online. It's online and, and look at it. Um, it's beautifully done. And we're hoping to build off of it. We're, we're not done. We're still we're still <laughs> no, working I can see on you're it. Not. And one of the things we have to kind of close it up and you might have some closing thoughts, but one of the threads that's interested me in this whole discussion is the important role that women have played. You know, the first bus driver, the building the shotgun house herself, the um, women who supported the community with their domestic labor during the depression. Just so many things, so much of history is male, if, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. When you look at these historic places, mm -hmm. there a lot of them are men's homes. Or, mm -hmm. And do you have any thoughts on the strength of the women in this community? Or They, they, they were women 
who were God-fearing and they believed that where there was a will, there was a way. And that's not to take away from the men of this community by any stretch of the imagination because the men worked equally as hard. They were the backbone. They did the building. They did the things the women couldn't do. Um, I had an uncle who had a pig farm. And he had all kinds of animals. And he was very industrious. He had, he had a, a, a garage of sorts where if you needed a car part, you could come to him and find that car part. Um, he kept his pig farm until the city made him give it up. And when they made him give up his pig farm, they actually arrested him oh because he was stubborn and felt he had a right to keep his pigs. Um, but he eventually moved his pig farm to Esperance, New York. But the the thing that I would like to, uh, I think, share that I feel really tells who these individuals were was their faith in God. They believed that there was nothing they couldn't do if they believed and they had faith. And they did that by worshiping and praying and doing whatever they could to help each other. There was, there was a, the, the sense of community was so strong here. It didn't matter whose child you were. From one end of the road to the other, you were treated like you belonged to everyone. And they say it takes a village to a whole village to raise a child. That's the way it was here. And that's an African saying, so it's got roots in that it's kind of community. It's got roots in it. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that for me, I am third generation here. And I never really knew how I got here because, as I said, I lived in a bedroom community in Clifton Park for a number of years. And then one day I found myself just plopped here on Rap Road. And so, like Elder Lewis Parson, I believe God brought me here because he knew that in order for us to keep what was formed here, what was born here, someone had to pick up the mantle. And I'm hoping to pass it on to the next generation. So we're working very hard to uh, groom and, and keep our next generation involved in this process. And uh, the way we do this is every year, the third weekend in August, we have a huge family reunion. And we close off Rap Road down at 
the intersection of Springsteen Road, which is now called Emma Dixon Way because we had the road dedicated yes, to her. Yes, we covered that. That was lovely. And so we that road is closed off every summer, the third weekend in August, and it's closed down on Friday evening at sunset till Monday morning sunrise so that we can have the family reunion and the children can learn of their history and understand who lived here and how they lived. And it's a wonderful affair. We have, uh, we used to roast a pig every year and that got to be somewhat cumbersome. So while we no longer roast the pig, we do have the barbecue and we have a big pot that corn is boiled in and the corn is left in the husk and thrown over in that pot and I think everyone that has that corn just can't get enough of it. There's something about that corn being boiled in that pot in that husk that makes everybody just want corn on the cob. So we're we're doing things that will help our young to appreciate their history. And uh, anyone that is interested in supporting our endeavor, we have, we do have um, a Facebook uh, page that you can like us. We also have our um, email. It's albany, uh, dot com. And, and that's just so people can remember, it's Rap Road, what's the H-A, Historic Association? Mm-hmm. So R-R-H-A. Okay. It's, it's Albany. Albany R-R-H-A. H-A. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we, we'd love to anyone that is interested in hearing our story, we're open to coming and sharing with you. Um, you can uh, reach me. By telephone, area code 518-605-4854. And I would love to uh, come and share our story with you because it's one worth being told. Well, thank you. You have shared it beautifully, and thank you for sharing your home as well. Thank you for coming. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for coming.